All right. So, hello. Hello. Uh, Beards, Cats, and Indie Game Audio, episode whatever this is. Seven? Eight? Nine? 37? 42. There will be a number at the top of the page. You can look at that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Beards, Cats, and Indie Game Audio. I'm Gordon McGlattery. I'm Matthew Mernson. And uh, so we just got back from PAX. That's a lie. We got back from PAX like a month ago. Yeah, basically. Basically a month ago. But neither of us got sick, so nope. that's a small miracle. Yeah. Lots of hand sanitizer. And lots of vitamin D. Just no contact with anybody. Didn't talk to a soul. No, you just give the head nod. Sup. Yeah. Sup. Sup. Don't touch me. So, yeah, how did it go down for you? What Good. We had a really on? great booth. It, you know, went together Easy for a change. Came down easy for a change. Your so. booth was amazing. I think, Thank you. I think the Invisible Ink booth was potentially the coolest booth at PAX. Corey, our, our community manager guy, really put a lot of effort into a lot of crazy stuff. Hopefully some of you were there and saw it, but there was an insane locked box with lasers and a smoke machine and lock picking, and it was awesome. Yeah. Uh, Clay had lock pick sets as swag. It was you can you can actually buy them on the clay store. Ah, there's some leftovers. Yeah. Cool. I got one and I did try a lot to pick. So I was I spent a bunch of time trying to pick my mandolin case. Because <laughs> it, it was the closest thing. I wasn't going to like try to pick a, a door lock. Yep. And then I lost the key or I misplaced the key for the mandolin case. And uh, I was recording some music and I was like, oh, man, maybe I'll throw some mandolin in this song. And it could not find the key. So you had to pick it. No, I just decided that the song did not need mandolin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that works. I found it later. Yeah, and so uh, another thing, while you were at, at PAX, you were at EMP. Yes. You kind of got an announcement out of that. and This and is a, I have three announcements this month. Sweet. So the first one being, and this is applicable to the podcast, uh, is that one of my songs from Rogue Legacy got chosen to be in a exhibit in a museum, which is wild. Uh, the Experience Music Project in Seattle is putting on an exhibit called the Indie Game Revolution, and it looks amazing. And yep. they're just going to have all these indie games. Sweet. In this crazy, like, three-dimensional voxel, uh, like, poly setup. Yep. They, they showed me the construction area and everything. It's, it's super cool. So they picked one of my songs just to be sort of in as part of the soundtrack. Cool. With a bunch of other cool artists. So That's pretty awesome. And so I interviewed the curator. Yeah. Who uh, invited me and gave me a cool tour. So we'll listen to that now. Yeah. All right. So I'm. it's Gordon by myself here for Beards, Cats, and Indie Game Audio. And I am with Jacob McMurray, who is... I am the senior curator at the EMP Museum in Seattle. Yeah. And so Jacob very kindly chose one of my songs to be part of this new exhibit that's going to be, that's called the, what, the Indie Revolution? Indie Game Revolution. Indie yes. Game Revolution. So do you want to tell us a little about what that is? Sure. Uh, so basically, Indie Game Revolution is uh, an exhibit that's trying to explore the um, diversity of, you know, of uh, game creations that are being uh, uh, put together within this larger indie space. Um, we're going to have 20 playable games, and uh, um, all those games will be, every two months we're switching out a dozen games, so it'll feature over 
80 games per year. Um, the exhibit will be a long-term exhibition, so we're thinking two years or more. And uh, this really kind of started off um, about a year ago uh, when we hosted a Smithsonian traveling exhibition called The Art of Video Games. And, uh, um, and that was much more of a nostalgic kind of look at the history of video games in a... Um, but it was so popular for us. I mean, it was so huge. Every program we did was huge that, uh, you know, we thought about, you know, we're, we focus on uh, music, we focus on uh, literature, on film. Why not bring gaming into the core of what we do? And, uh, and so that kind of spurred off the idea of like having an exhibition, uh, you know, longer term that could focus on gaming. And then when I started working on it uh, last fall, I really, uh, um, wanted to focus that more. I mean, to do an exhibit on, all of games would be like to do an exhibit on film, you know, it'd be right. meaningless. So wanting to focus that. And for me, what seemed really exciting was what was going on in the, in the current, you know, indie scene. And so I think that's, that's the whole thrust of it is that it's not looking backward at all. It's like the games we're featuring and the artists we're featuring are from um, games that have been released really in the last year mm-hmm. and, uh, or games that haven't been released at all. Which is an, it's an interesting take on it because usually the you know the uh, the concept of museum is usually historical looking yeah. backwards. Like how yeah, how does that fit into the context of it being a museum? Is right. it pushback against that or? Yeah, I think it's you know it's interesting. I mean, we we come across these struggles a lot at EMP where you know we're a pretty non traditional museum you know subject matter wise and uh, but I, but you're totally right. I mean, this is you know the first exhibit that we've done that that doesn't look at the past, you know, that, that really is staying current and, uh, current and future. And so, you know, when I first started working on this exhibit and I went down to IndieCade last October and was seeing some of the panels and, uh, you know, and, and meeting some of the people, I mean, I was really excited, but I was also really kind of, you know, I felt a, a little bit anxious as well because, you know, it's all happening right now. And how do we reflect that? You mm-hmm. know, how do we create a structure that allows for change over time, knowing that there probably is going to be significant amount of change happening within, you know, this larger indie space, you know, over the next couple of years. So mm-hmm. um, it's definitely something that I've thought, thought about a lot and, you know, how to implement in the, in the space. Right. And so you have the coolest job in the world. <laughs> um, how did that happen? Well, I, uh, um, I've been here for, uh, 20 years now, um, and, uh, since before the museum opened and I, uh, I moved out to Seattle in, uh, 1990 to go to school at the University of Washington. Um, and, uh, I got two, uh, eccentric, useless degrees in, uh, uh archaeology and Danish language and literature. High five and, for useless uh, degrees. <laughs> yes. And, uh. <laughs> Um, I was working at the Burke Museum on the University of Washington campus, which is a natural history museum, and working in the archaeology department, uh, cataloging rocks and bones and dirt. And uh, and they couldn't pay pay me one summer because grant funding ran out. And so I was searching for another job, and I heard about this uh, job opening up as a cataloger at the Jimi Hendrix Museum. Right. Which I was always, you know, a big fan of classic rock and loved, you know, Jimi Hendrix and... Uh, um, I actually wasn't going to apply for it uh, because it was in a different city. It was in Bellevue, um, you know, across the water from Seattle. And, uh, and then my roommate convinced me to do so. And I got the job, started cataloging Jimi Hendrix records. And uh, from there, it 
sort of turned into collecting, uh, um, you know, this was in the mid-90s, kind of right after, I mean, it started two months after Kurt Cobain passed away. So mm -hmm. we were collecting a lot of material related to uh, that Northwest scene that was happening, you know, in the big grunge scene. And that kind of expanded out into sort of uh, popular music in general. And uh, and from the cataloging side, I started working on it, on the exhibits themselves and eventually sort of moved over to the curatorial side. So at this point, I've, uh, you know, basically just make exhibits all the time. Yeah. So, yeah, it went from, you know, I mean, in the last four years, I've made exhibitions on uh, Nirvana, on horror film, on Jimi Hendrix, and, you know, and video games now. Yeah, so. video games, which is pretty sweet. Um, what is, so what is the, like, how does the exhibit creation process go? Like, how iterative sure. is that? Well, it's a... Uh, you know, we're lucky in that we get, in general, get a, probably about a year to create an exhibition. So it's it's not a giant amount of time, but it's enough time to be able to really cogitate over what's going to be a good story. And mm -hmm. uh, and is that uh, to create the concept, or is that to create the concept and implement it and build it? the whole thing, yeah. That seems like hardly any time at all. Well, thank you. That's... that's um, <laughs> You're probably one of the few people that... that Looking at all that, that yeah. stuff that's going in for the, the, yeah. the indie game revolution in the shop and it going together. Yeah. It's that crazy. seems like it would take a year on its own just building the thing. Well, it's... Uh, you know, I mean, luckily we have a good amount of people that, you know, that are able to work on these projects together. I mean, as the curator, I'm basically kind of the creative lead. Um, mm -hmm. So I, you know, come up with a storyline, I write all the text, I interview all the people, I find the artifacts, I do the press for it, I'm kind of overall sort of the look and feel sort of uh, instigator. Um, but beyond that, I mean, we do have, uh, you know, all these different departments that will plug into the process, you know, at, at specific times. You know, we have fabricators that will make all of the, you know, in this case, make these, you know, 4,000 cubes that we're going to have in, in the gallery. And... Uh, you know, we have uh, designers that will, do, you know, design everything, you know, et cetera, all, all on down the line. So, I mean, all all in all, I mean, there's probably a hundred people that will touch this exhibit from right. beginning to end. But it really is, you know, up to me to kind of, um, to kind of drive it forward. Um, but I guess with this exhibit, I mean, it's, uh, you know, that process really starts out with a, uh, Usually I know at the beginning, either I know the topic that I'm supposed to be doing, you know, sometimes I get to choose that. Sometimes it's like, you know, it's like we need to do an exhibit on video games and then yeah. it's like given to me. But uh, but once I have that, it's up to me to come up with what that general scope's going to be, you know, and I always have to throughout this process get various things approved at different levels, stuff like that. But once it starts, then really, I guess... I feel like my main job being a curator is that I need to become a really quick uh, study on whatever particular subject that is. That's I mean, what I, I was just going to say. You seem to have, you seem to have a, like a very in depth knowledge of video games, and I assumed that you were an avid gamer. Yeah, or well, is that, just, um, is that mainly research? I, you know, I would say that. I mean, I played games since I was ten years old. I mean, in yeah. 1982, when I was ten, my uh, I bought or my dad bought Wizardry 1 for me, uh, right 13,000 lines of Pascal, I remember it saying on the box. But uh, um, And so, I mean, I've definitely played games uh, throughout my life, but I've never been a huge gamer necessarily. So yeah. I think definitely starting this process a bit, about a year ago, I had no idea 
really the the width and breadth of the realm that I was that, that I was entering, and, and yeah. going to indicate really was a really an initial step into that. Right. Um, but then it really for me is becomes a process of yeah educating myself. You know, uh, you know, reading fifteen blogs every day. You know, mm. and, and uh, you know, and then interviewing people. I mean, during this process, you know, we just interviewed you today. Um, you were the 43rd interview that we've done in the past, you know, two and a half months. So, right. uh, you know, every one of those people that I interviewed, um, slightly tweaked or confirmed or, you know, changed the, you know, my sort of conception of what this exhibit could be. Yeah. So I think, uh, um, you're, you know, you're as in the scene as any game maker, I think. Yeah. Now. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is, it's like, in the end, this isn't my exhibit, yeah. you know, it's it's not my story, it's the story of, you know, these hundreds, you know, thousands of people that are that are making all of these amazing uh, creations, and so my always biggest anxiety is wanting to make sure that it's going to be accepted by those people that are, you know, in that realm. Yeah. You know, it's like the, the 600,000 people that come to the museum every year a good portion of those have no conception of what video games are or a very narrow definition of that. Yeah. And they will they will take as gospel anything that I put up on the wall. Right. Um, but, you know, that small minority that does know what they're talking about, I want to make sure they come away going like, yeah, they did a really good job. Yeah. So That's something that we have to deal with with the YouTube channel all the time. Yeah. Very, very close research. Because if you're putting that kind of stuff out to the world and you're wrong about something, the experts right. just jump all over you. Definitely. Yeah. So yeah, it's a. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I I agree with you. I think I do have the best job in the world. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I get paid to be a big nerd and research nerdy things every day. Yeah. And uh, and I mean, that's why I've been here for two decades. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's uh, sometimes I get freaked out that I've you know been in one job for twenty years because no one ever does that. But uh, <laughs> but at the same time, it's it's uh. You know, I, I mean, I just, there's occasionally I kind of look back and it's like, wow, I'm watching horror films at work and it's work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like, I'm at home and I have to tell my wife, honey, I need to do uh, some research and play video games. You know, yeah. how bizarre is that? Yeah. That's so. awesome. So Jacob took me down to the, uh, what, the archive or the, <laughs> the archive and I got to touch one of Jimi Hendrix's guitars <laughs> and it was amazing. Yeah. A aside. Yeah, we have a we have the largest broken guitar collection in the world uh, yeah. with uh, Jimi Hendrix and Kurt Cobain. Uh, you saw one, a non-broken one. Yeah. Which was uh, Jimi Hendrix's uh, 1955 uh, Gibson Les Paul Custom uh, called Black Beauty, um, and uh, it was a guitar that Jimi Hendrix uh, purchased in uh, the early '60s when he was playing in the Chitlin Circuit in the Southern U.S. and uh, um, playing with uh, bands like Ike and Tina Turner and Little Richard and uh, the Isley Brothers. And uh, he had uh, shared it, uh, sort of co-purchased it with one of his compatriots, this uh, musician named Larry Lee, who, uh, when Jimi Hendrix moved to England in, uh, in 1966, he, Larry Lee soon after was uh, um, went over to Vietnam uh, to be a soldier in Vietnam and came back to the U.S., 
right before the Woodstock concert. Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix's sort of famed Woodstock concert uh, happened. And uh, Jimmy um, asked Larry, had, you know, Jimmy had the guitar and asked Larry, like, hey, do you want to come and play in my band? Mm-hmm. And so, like, literally a month after Larry Lee returned from Vietnam, he's playing, you know, at Woodstock. what, you know, <laughs> was possibly the most, you know, famous concert of all time. Yeah. So... Yep, you touched that one. I touched it. I touched it. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Okay. <laughs> Except everybody on the podcast. <laughs> so, and this is a sound podcast, so I've got to get back to that. Yeah, uh, sorry. So when you're, and but you have to consider sound very carefully when you're curating a new exhibit, which you showed me on the tour today. Yeah. So what are the kind of things you think about? Well, I think that, uh, you know, to me, sound uh, is as important as the graphics on the walls, as the artifacts, as the anything visual in the gallery. I mean, sound is such a, you know, huge clue for people as to what to do, what mood they're supposed to, to, you know, kind of what frame of mind they're supposed to be in, in the gallery. So, you know, I think years ago we sort of thought of sound or, you know, a soundtrack as kind of an afterthought or, or something you put together at the last moment. But for me, especially over the last several exhibitions, you know, I really kind of uh, feel like it's one of the, you know, one of the main tools along with, you know, my other narrative tools that I have at my my fingertips. You know, it's with people at museums, people ingest information in so many different ways. You know, it's some people will read all of my beautiful text on the walls. You know, mm-hmm. other people will totally ignore it. You know, so to try to convey narrative, I'm always trying to be redundant in that and can convey narrative over many different mediums um, or media. So sound is, is one of those. Mm -hmm. So with, with the indie game revolution exhibition, you know, we have this really evocative uh, exhibition design, um, which is basically, it's as if a voxelated cloud had wafted into the space and somehow adhered to, uh, to the room. And this, you know, cloud is made out of, 4,000 6-inch, 12-inch, and 18-inch cubes that we've handmade and assembled, and it's canted at this beautiful angle, and the game stations are nestled into this kind of, you know, uh, thing that we've created, and it'll all be lit with this very beautiful, uh, intense light that, you know, has a spectrum between a, you know, really strong uh, cyan and and a magenta. And so, you know, for me, it's like, in the beginning, the exhibit design was feeling to me as if it was some, like, ancient living crystalline being you know Mm -hmm. and and we you know wanted to convey this feeling of warmth of like kind of like not really cave-like more Mm -hmm. womb-like sort of a gently pulsing sort of you know feeling something that you know visitors would feel very uh you know excited and intrigued into coming into it can feel mysterious but it can never feel oppressive it can never feel um, negative. It can't feel scary. It can't feel off-putting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and a lot of that's due to, like, the nature of, you know, like, what we're going to be showing. You know, there'll be a lot of people that will just flock to these games. There'll be a lot of people that'll be like, ooh, I don't know, games are not for me. So trying mm-hmm. to create this welcoming environment is important. And so, and the, the soundtrack, I felt like, was really import, an important part of that. And originally, I uh, had wanted to uh, have a, a custom composition that, you know, from a single composer that, you know, could really, you know, adhere to that exhibit design and really sort of, you know, f- uh, flesh it out. 
Um, and even when as far as like thinking like maybe we could have some sort of, you know, reactive or generative score that, you know, depending on the number of people in the gallery or where people are, or what you did or interfaced with that, you know, different elements could, uh, could, uh, um, be pulled into that. And as a big, you know, sort of fan of, you know, Brian Eno and, mm-hmm. uh, thing, you know, uh, musicians like that, you know, it's like, I kind of love that. Yeah. Like, and and working with Trimpin. and oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. that's definitely like up his alley and what yeah. he does too. Right. So. Totally. Yeah. Trimpin is a genius. And so, but then uh, for budget reasons, for, you know, sort of, uh, timeline reasons for, you know, complexity and, you know, and everything else that we had, uh, decided to accomplish, decided to change change that scope and it actually went for the better because i think you know as we started doing a lot of these interviews and realizing that the most one of the most important things to convey in this in this exhibit is really the diversity mm-hmm. of experiences of reasons people are making games of uh, you know of uh, types of games that are that are being made out there um the, that diversity was really important to convey um you know, with the games, but also with with the compositions. You know, I mean, there's so many amazing composers, such as yourself, uh, you know, out there. Oops. Whoa, it is like pitch black in here. <laughs> the lights just went out. Oh, I here, I know why. Here, one sec. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, but there's so many amazing composers out there, you know, making wonderful music for, for games that it's like, why not show that diversity as well? Mm-hmm. And so... We started compiling a, you know, a, an extensive list of, you know, the game music that we loved and were really excited about, but, you know, specifically music that kind of fit with this voxelated structure and, mm-hmm. uh, and that feeling of, you know, warmth and womb, wombness and et cetera that we're trying to convey. And so, uh, you know, I think we've ultimately come down to, I think there's 23 or 24 tracks now from as many different composers mm-hmm. and, uh, um, and I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a really great addition to the to the exhibit. And what's what we're trying to do with that as well is that it's those are not being played anonymously. So whenever there's um, you know the, the the soundtrack will emanate from this central voxelated cloud that's in the in the gallery. And there's one section in the gallery that focuses specifically on music and sound design in games. And so there'll be some sort of interpretive uh, you know information about that on the, on the panel, but embedded in that, that sort of large display is a, is a monitor that, you know, say if it's, you know, playing something from, you know, disaster piece or, you know, whoever Mm -hmm. it is, it'll show, uh, um, information about that composer and the composition, Mm -hmm. um, on the screen. So it's always, you know, trying to make sure that that's everything is purposeful in the gallery. Right. Through your quick study over the past year, what are your feelings on like whether like game music is legitimate to society? Does it matter? Like, should we even care? Right. Well, I mean, I think game music is absolutely legitimate. I mean, I think that you know, in a way, it's some of this. Uh, um, some of these questions are the same questions that you know games are getting in general, mm-hmm. and you know, and probably game music is in a way suffering from the same you know, negative attitudes in, in some realms as, as games are getting, you yeah. know, I mean, just that idea that, you know, games are, are frivolous or they're, you know, not for adults or things like that. But, uh, but no, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, I feel like I've listened to 200, you know, game soundtracks in the last, you know, several months. And, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's some of the, my most favorite music that, uh, 
you know, I can, uh, I can remember in recent times. And I also think, you know, the idea that there's, you know, more and more, you know, quote unquote traditional musicians that are, you know, are contributing to game soundtracks that are purposely making music for games. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it's clearly, it's that, uh, you know, it's being viewed as, as more legitimate, even though it always is legitimate. And I guess I would say, you know, beyond that, I mean, I do love the idea that, you know, at one point point in time, game music really was game music, you know? Yeah, uh, it might not even be actual composers doing it in the old days. It would just be a programmer. Well, and just the idea that, you know, that that music might not be able to live on its own, you know, might be so, you know, so within the realm of, you know, of, of... you know, the game sphere that it wouldn't make sense outside of that. But, uh, I mean, just the sheer diversity of, you know, styles of music and, you know, composition techniques and ways that music is being implemented into, into games now, I think is, you know, is amazing. It's great. Yeah. There's a lot of great stuff out there. One thing like that I noticed like on Rogue Legacy coming into it was that we weren't able to charge as much for game soundtracks as we could Mm -hmm. for just an album necessarily it was just game soundtracks were cheaper Is which i changing? kind of i fought against that i didn't i didn't want to lower the price of our album and it didn't that didn't seem to affect sales either so hmm. game composers out there i'd say bump it up a bit that's great 12 album 12 song album is not worth five dollars yeah worth, no kidding <laughs> it's yeah, worth definitely. more than that yeah i think it's a lot of the time it's because people can get the entire game for five dollars off of steam yeah. So it's interesting the way that works. Yeah, definitely. So and for the nerdier people, so we were going through the the horror exhibit, and you were explaining mm-hmm. a sixteen channel sound system, and for the fantasy exhibit too, as yeah, well. And your body, so, yeah. so what is that like? How was that set up? Right, that you can get that, technical if you want. Well, yeah. So I mean, the first exhibit that I had a, a specific. Uh, score for was uh, the Nirvana Taking Punk to the Masses exhibition. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, with that, um, I hired a friend of mine. He's a composer named Steve Fisk, uh, who uh, has recorded thousands of bands in in Seattle. Uh, He went to Evergreen State College. You know, he uh, um, was kind of... uh, Pretty well known for you know recording lots of Screaming Trees albums. He recorded a, an EP, the Blue EP for Nirvana. Recorded Soundgarden, Unwound. Uh, he was in a band called Pigeonhead um, for a long time. Um, but amazing, he was in Pell Mell. Um, amazing guy, mighty brain, and uh, I really just enjoy hanging out with him. And uh, I talked to him early on about like trying to create something that was a more purposeful score for a gallery, which we'd never done. And uh, um, since we had similar sensibilities, he's really into more avant-garde, more atmospheric and, uh, you know, textural music. I thought he'd be great for the Nirvana gallery because I specifically didn't want a, uh, a, a score that felt grungy, you know, right. it's like, there will be no flannel. There'll be no doc Martens in the gallery. It's like the artifacts, the films, the time period conveys that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the atmosphere doesn't need to do that. The atmosphere needs to be a contemplative space mm-hmm. that, you know, can gently, subtly guide, you know, your frame of mind, you know, so that you can, you can best absorb that content. So, he created a... Um, and yeah, so what's your 
direction to Steve? How how controlling are you with um, that, or do you just tell him what you just told me and let him loose? I uh, I think with Steve because I trusted him a lot, and I um, and I kn- know what his sort of reference points are. I was totally fine kind of laying, like, here's some really general parameters. You know, it's like, well, and so here's some other parameters with that. We had three, there's, in that gallery, there are three other ambient audio sources. There are three films. Right. So there'd be talking heads, there'd be music in that. So it was like, how do we create a, you know, a sonic layer that isn't going to fight with that? Right. For one. Um, and so do you think isolation in those terms or frequency content or, or both? Well, I think it was more like let's let's create some sort of, you know, uh, sonic solution that'll that will that will where those sounds can cohabitate. Right. So um, because I knew that he was really into more textural things as well. It's uh, I love the idea that you know we created something that felt very ungrunge like, yeah. and uh, so when you hear that the score in the gallery, which ended up being a sixty minute uh, score, there was uh, sixteen discrete channels, um, mm. and those channels were kind of ringed below and above uh, in the gallery, and you know the different elements were moving around as you were walking through it. And it, you know, it had sort of kind of more natural or atmospheric elements, like there was some rain sounds, there was kind of like this little tinking hammer that, you know, you know, sort of referenced kind of a DIY sort of aesthetic. I mean, everything was trying to like give you the sense of the idea that these are, you know, Nirvana came from these very blue collar roots that, you know, through a lot of uh, talent, ambition, a lot of, you know, do it yourself kind of uh, ethic sort of went from nowhere to the top of the world. Um, and, you know, a lot of droned guitars, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, it's a beautiful score. I mean, even, even as a stereo mix, it's just like, right. I love listening to it and it's excellent for writing exhibit text. But, but that was sort of the initial, you know, a, a foray into that. And then when I worked on the horror exhibition, um, I had a little more budget and, uh, um, cause the Nirvana one, he kind of did all himself in his studio. Right. And for the horror exhibit, we wanted to have, you know, because we're talking about horror film. When he's working in his studio, is he working with 16 sound sources? Does he have a bunch of speakers in his he studio? He was working... Uh, he had a quad set up okay. in his studio, and then I think he just worked it out in his brain how he was right. going to... to do, I don't know. It's like, for me, I'm not really an audio person, so it quickly gets yeah. out of the realm where I know what he's talking about. and. Right. Uh, so, you know, I just would sit down and go like, that sounds awesome. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, so when we went to the, the horror scenario, we had a little bit more budget and, uh, um, and I still love that idea of that, you know, multiple channels and what's great with the, you know, our, uh, uh, setup at the museum, we have extensive show controls that can kind of, you know, easily, uh, accommodate, you know, as many channels as we needed. So, I mean, it was like the capability infrastructure is there so yeah. why not use it and uh um and so with that score because it's film and sound is such a huge part of you know of film and with it, and because it's horror yeah i mean horror you know sound is uh, of ultimate importance for uh, for conveying suspense and you know and terror and horror so uh it just made perfect sense so he created a and again a 16 channel score that uh it was loosely based, you know, it's very heartbeat based, but it's also a waltz. And when you listen to it in the gallery, it kind of like there are elements that feel 
like different discrete decades in you know the the, the evolution of you know of, of sound and horror film yeah um, and uh, and with that uh, he was able to actually uh, um, bring in extra uh, musicians so it's like live strings and uh, um, you know it's I mean it's a really beautiful piece yeah, so. yeah it sounds great in there. oh and I guess with that you know we were talking about like you know, with that horror gallery, there's nine ambient audio sources, you know, beyond that score. And, uh, you know, how do we deal with, you know, isolation? How do you, you know, make it so it isn't a just a terrible cacophony yeah. in the gallery and that, you know, your head wants to explode like a, you know, Cronenberg Scanners film or something like that. But, uh, right, um, and you explained it to me. So how did you go about dealing with that isolation? Because it was pretty cool. Yeah, well, and, you know, and in general, with a lot of exhibits, what I tend to do is, like, just minimize the amount of ambient audio sources, you mm-hmm. know, just because it's, even though the idea of everybody wearing headphones is sort of isolating and weird, at the same time, it's like we've had exhibits in the past where, I mean, it really has felt like your head's going to explode because there's right. too much going on. And uh, so with the horror gallery, um, that was the first uh, time we hired somebody to do, you know, like, I guess, I don't know, what would you call it? Sound design in the space, yeah, you know? Sound, sound design. And, uh, um, <laughs> and so one of the, the issues that we have is with that horror gallery, we have 10 different um, uh, film areas. And each of those film areas is playing this two-minute film, and there's a lot of audio going on. So, um, and we can't really put doors or ceilings on anything because uh, it uh, becomes a fire code issue. And we have to you know, spend a ton of money piping in sprinklers and all this stuff. So I had to have open ceilings, I had to have open doors. And so to, to mitigate that, the, the thicket, as we call it, the central area where the films are that uh, it has like kind of a rubber floor which kind of helps contain some of the sound the walls of the thicket are all this kind of uh, water jet cut um, foam which it's like this acoustical foam called T-Max and yeah. uh, which you know is a good sound absorber and then above a lot of the areas in that gallery are these triangular um, uh, plastic sheet uh, pieces it's, it's, it's a material called clear sorber which is a it's like a plastic sheet with microperfed holes in it, which helps uh, absorb the sound as well. And then once you go into the particular uh, uh, film areas themselves, um, the films don't start until somebody actually enters the gallery. The, the speakers are directional. So uh, um, it all kind of works together in this sort of mystical way to, <laughs> to actually work. Um, in that gallery, we also have a scream booth where we actually encourage people to scream their lungs out. And... Uh, and with that, we like we you know purchased an off-the-shelf uh, um, sort of acoustical room by uh, I think it's the same oh, as the yeah, one yeah. we are in right now. Actually, okay. they're from the company. It's called Wanger. Um, and uh, and I was like, oh great, we'll kind of isolate that sound. You won't hear it, but you totally do hear it outside of the gallery. Yeah. But it kind of like it's like ah, people screaming. It adds to the gallery. So. Yeah, yeah, totally. But uh, but yeah, it was an interesting process, and it's something that it's like opened my eyes to the possibilities of, you know, of, uh, of sound design and, and, you know, within exhibit design a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really neat. Yeah. So when you're sh- shopping, so I'm thinking of the archive again, mine is wondering, um, when you're shopping for stuff, how do you decide what you're getting and what you're not getting? Right. Um, well, we're not doing much shopping anymore. Um, but when we were actively collecting, which was from the early nineties to about 2000, um, 
you know, and overall we have over a hundred thousand objects in our permanent collection. Um, you know, at that point, I mean, we really were trying to be kind of, you know, like the place for popular music. So, mm -hmm. you know, we had sort of subject areas. We knew we were collecting Northwest. So it's like I would go around to record stores and to screen printing shops and to, you know, and, and buy basically anything related to any band that was from the Northwest, which I was determining as Washington, Oregon, Idaho, uh, B.C., and sometimes Alaska, sometimes Montana right. too. Okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, with that, I mean, we amassed probably 40,000 objects. Um, you know, CDs, records, uh, instruments, clothing, um, posters, you know, flyers, handbills, etc. Um, they're entire mixing boards. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's like there's some big stuff down. Yeah, there. we have King Tubby's mixing board. We've got one of Jimi Hendrix's mixing boards from uh, Electric Lady Studios. Um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. But, uh, um, you know, so over time, and we, you know, a lot of that collecting was happening based on whatever exhibit we were working on. You mm -hmm. know, we were always collecting Northwest, but, you know, we did a, an exhibit called Island Revolution, which was all about uh, 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 ska, rock, steady, and, and early reggae up to the time when, when Marley got famous. And mm -hmm. so with that, we made many trips to, to Jamaica, did some really weird deals out in the countryside with... Uh, some people with you know, there's one guy named Bluebeard that we bought King Tubby's mixing console out of, and we had to like bring a bag of cash to him, and, uh, and it was like he wanted to meet out in the countryside in the middle of nowhere. And were you there for that? I, I I was asked if I would go down to yeah. uh, Jamaica with like thirteen thousand dollars in my pants, you know, to uh, you know, and I was like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. So, <laughs> so who'd you get to do it? So we got our sound guy actually. Oh really? Yeah, uh, John to do that, and. Uh, he said it was the, one of the most frightening things of uh, times of his life to go into this Jamaica, Jamaican bank and, uh, you know, with all this, you know, these U.S. dollars and change that into, like, literally, like, two grocery bags full of really? Jamaican currency. Awesome. Well, everyone is, like, staring at you <laughs> in Kingston, you know. And, uh, um, you know, or... Like other exhibits, we did a Chicago blues exhibit, so collecting all this material from, you know, blues greats. We did a, a, an exhibit called Yes, Yes, Y'all on the first uh, 10 years of hip-hop. So I got to go to New York and, uh, um, you know, buying old paste-up, you know, flyer paste-ups from, uh, you know, Buddy Esquire and Phase 2 and some of these, you know, early greats and, you know, interviewing a lot of these people as well. So uh, um, it's uh, it kind of grew organically, and, you know, a lot of that... You know, funding sort of ran out by the time we opened because a lot of that was funded by uh, Paul Allen, who is the the founder of the museum. He's the co-founder of Microsoft. Um, mm -hmm. So, so really now we we exist, uh, you know, much more uh, on loans and on donations. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so yeah, cool. And so you've been collecting this oral history as well, which is yeah. What I was doing was not just for. Uh, just for the exhibit, it's apparently contributing to this large catalog yeah. of uh, of uh, interviews. Yeah. And so what's the importance of that as opposed to just getting people to write something about themselves? Well, I think, you know, um, I guess to, you know, to, to sum up that there's, you know, we've done over 900 filmed uh, oral history interviews over mm -hmm. the last 17 years or so, 17, 18 years. And, uh, 
Um, those interviews are, are pretty long form. They're usually at least an hour. The longest one I ever did was with director John Landis and it was four and a half hours long. And I asked maybe 10 questions. Um, (laughs) and, uh, um, and you know, so it's thousands of hours of footage and it's really become one of the, you know, besides the artifact collection, you know, one of the most important assets that we have because it's, I think that it's it's great to have, you know, that versus something written just because you get to see that person. You get to yeah. hear what they're saying. You know, oftentimes a lot of the interviews we've been doing, I mean, especially with indie games, you know, it's like this is all, it's all like right in at the, the moment of, you know, when that creator is actually doing what they're best known for, you yeah. know, potentially. You know, so it's like being able 10 years from now or 20 years from now to look back and see what the state of indie games was, you know, at this time, I think will be really interesting for people. You know, um, we have some of the last interviews that a lot of musicians did before they died. And so, um, you know, be able to, being able to capture those stories, not only of, you know, the superstars, but, you know, the people that maybe never got interviewed, you know, I think is, is really important. Um, and I think partially because a lot of the subject matter that we cover, uh, sometimes isn't considered high culture enough to formally document. Right. So, you know, it's, uh, many of these stories might never have been covered, you right. know? So, so I think that it's really important. And, um, I don't know. I mean, it's some of the most fun things that I get to do. I mean, I've done yeah. probably 200 of these or more now. And, uh, it used to be really nerve wracking. Yeah, I bet. Preparing for them and, now it's just, I mean, I think everybody has an amazing story. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank that was, you. That was awesome. All right. So that was pretty awesome. That was really interesting. Yeah. What a what a great guy to interview. I yeah. hardly had to say anything. <laughs> um, yeah, it was. it's awesome. It's awesome that they're doing something that is kind of considered lowbrow by a lot of people and treating it with the same respect anything else in a museum would get treated Yeah, as. Jacob is a super astute guy Yeah, and like very open-minded and like he said, he's just a quick study. Um, like when he first uh, talked to me, I actually ran into him at Indiecade. Yeah. And uh, wasn't even sure which museum he was talking about. And I I just assumed that he was a big indie game fan. Yeah. But he's just able to very quickly become a very in-depth fan of things. Cool. And like, That's awesome. he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. It's wild. Sweet. All right. So you were like, that's... That's one of uh, two announcements you were one about of, to make? One of three announcements. One uh, of three. Uh, second okay. one being uh, we just had our Kickstarter for Parkitect. That was successful. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. You and I went and did some original recordings. Maybe we can post some recordings for people to download. Yeah, let's do that. Um, that we'll we post got. some stuff. We went out to um, – Gord had been telling me that you know was going to do this game and he's going to line up recording at a you know big park, mm-hmm. theme park we've got here in town. And he was like, yeah, we're going to line something. I'm like, I'm totally down. I'll come out. And it was like, last minute, he's like, damn it, they're too busy. I have to wait till the spring. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's that's lame. And I started doing some searching. I'm like, there's a traveling fair. It's out in Agassiz, which is like way out in the – I don't even think – it wouldn't even count as the suburbs of Vancouver. No, it's like it an hour and a half outside of town. This was like on a Thursday. I was like – Friday, there's a fair. It's in Agassiz. It's an hour and a half away. It's the last fair of the season. Let's yes. do it. Let's go. <laughs> and you were a bit like, oh, we don't have any permission or anything. I was like, doesn't matter. We'll just go, gorilla, get some stuff, yeah. practice, see what it's like. It's 
go point our microphone at kids and see what people say. And it actually <laughs> turned out really successful. We got awesome recordings. Yeah. We were expecting to be throwing away most of the stuff because there was music playing the whole time, right? Yeah. But I uh, was able to high pass almost all of it out. Yeah, we were able to really get kind of position ourselves to reject as much of it at all. We also got some really great fireworks recordings that were going on mm-hmm. that night and a really awesome train pass by because yeah. the train tracks were right next yeah. to the uh, where the whole thing was going on. And it was extra exciting for me because I had just got an H6 like the day before. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things that um, I learned from doing this guerrilla recording um, was go with two people. If you go with two people – when people come up and start asking you what you're doing and what's, what's going on and what is that thing, mm-hmm. one person can, like, divert them and talk to them and the other person can, like, shift over and keep recording. Totally. That's how you got all the BB sounds. That I didn't get them, but I was like, hey, yeah, that's getting them. It's okay. But then, too, you were talking to the BB guys who were then like, oh, that's, that's awesome what you're doing. They were totally down with it. And we're like, we were recording behind the BB gun shooting range because it was like BBs into metal. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the guy saw that and was like, oh, just come over here. I'll unload a whole gun into the thing for you. Like, I'll let you know when it, and it was like, they like fired off stuff just for us. Yeah. And that was just us going like, hey, we're, we're doing this thing and showing them what we were up to. And they were totally into it. Like, yeah. That was, it was a blast. Yeah. It, it was, and we didn't get bothered much at all, really. No, there was a couple of people, like, asked what we were doing. Nobody stopped us. Nope. Um, we even, at the beginning, got a guy who kind of came over quite quickly, the semi-security guy, like, what is that? Yeah. And we're like, oh, it's just a microphone. I'm recording sounds. And he was like, okay. See ya. And that was it. Yeah, so that was great. You know, guerrilla recordings, it can be very beneficial. And just go for it, explain yourself, be polite, mm-hmm. and you can get away with a lot. Yeah, totally. People will help you out. And uh, be ready at a moment's notice to go, like... This was just like, okay, tomorrow we're doing it. Yeah. It was like super quick. We just took it. Didn't know what we were going to get. And I think it's always valuable to go in situations like that, especially if you've got a big record planned like Mm -hmm. you do. Yeah. You always screw up the first time you record something. Yeah, exactly. I had to practice with the gear. So if you get a chance to go do a similar thing, just free and wild gorilla style – Maybe you throw it all out, but at least it's practice for when you're going to pay to rent somewhere or... Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, it was very nice and free. Um, So, it was cool. My third announcement is that we just released the trailer for uh, Viking Squad. Sweet. Slick Entertainment. And it's doing awesome. Yeah. It's a great sounding trailer. I think it's my best mix uh, for a trailer I've ever done. Or for a linear thing, probably, I've ever done. Uh, Power Up Audio did all the sound effects. Yep. And then I just – I did the music and mixed Sweet. the final mix. Um, yeah, it's got like 40,000 views nice. on And it's going to be on, on PlayStation. PS, it's going to be on PS4. So PS4, uh, PC, and Mac. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. That's good. I um, I got no announcements. Nothing. I'm just still working on the same old stuff. Invisible Inks in early access. It's banging away. We're doing updates every two weeks. Yeah. Working on Don't Starve Together. Working on some other stuff that's not announced. That's it. So uh, – we had a big interview. That was a big thing. But uh, I hopped onto Twitter an hour ago and was like, oh, crap. Let's ask them. Let's see if anybody's got any questions because I was like, I don't know what else we're going to talk about other than the big interview, which was awesome. <laughs> so I got a couple of questions. And I got to do a little bit of research while you were not researching. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Todd um, asked, uh, any book recommendations? 
there is a book online that changed my life, yep. um, which is free. It was actually a forum post in the Reaper forums, mm-hmm. and it is called Why Do My Recordings Sound Like Ass? <laughs> and it was a really long, extremely well-written, like, multi-entry post by some guy who goes by Yep. Cool. Guy or girl. I mm-hmm. don't know who. Uh, they were very good at uh, keeping their identity hidden. But yep. uh, excellently explained metaphors and basic concepts. And they they seem to know what they're talking about. Like it's they yeah they were professional. It's yeah. more music based. It's yep. not sound design based. Um, but as that well, was like I read that when I was first starting out, and yeah. I was having eureka moments. Like that's cool. Every, I think so. So much of what we do is transferable. That you can yeah. take a lot of music stuff and apply it to what we do sound design. Yeah, it had lots of good things in it, like basic compression ideas. Like that's where I learned about subtractive EQ. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of workflow things as yeah. well. That's like cool. have a have a box full of this I think maybe not isn't as good for sound design, but if you have a box of junk and like maybe equipment that you've acquired and you have it sitting there and yep. you put a date on it and after a year passes if you haven't used it, <laughs> just get rid of it because it's just taking up space and your yeah, space is valuable. Yeah. I think that's I think that's uh, um good for gear. Yeah. To a certain extent, there's some gear that is just like I have a large collection of microphones. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be like, oh, there's microphones I haven't used for a long time, but there's a reason I have those microphones. Yeah, exactly. But there's pieces of like, like I have a po- old pod, a Line 6. Yeah. Guitar, and, well, I haven't used that in ages. I should get ri- I'm going to get rid of that because yeah. that's that's just taking up space. Yeah. So you got to know which to put in that dated pile. Mm-hmm. And I especially think when you're doing Foley, you, you, have to you accumulate – what looks like piles of junk and you need to keep that. Yeah. I have piles of bricks and chain and boots and yeah. like I have a pair of army boots I keep purely for doing footstep sounds with. Right. And I use them about once a year maybe. Yeah. Like I'm never going to wear them but yeah. they're the awesomest sounding army boots. <laughs> um, I would recommend uh, Rob Bridget's books as always. Um, Game Audio Culture and From Shadows of Film Sound. It's less like hard, this is what to do, and more like high-level stuff, but I think they're a really good look at the game industry and where we're going and where we're headed, where we've been. And I think that high-level stuff is good to know. I mean, I don't think there's many books that are good with the hard, like, you want to make this sound, then do this. Yeah. Right? That's the stuff that you just, you either learn yourself or you learn by talking to people but that high level stuff is better to like soak in. Yeah, I think you know? so. So, so yeah, that's that's mine. Todd Shemway, who was one of the co-hosts on Bleeps and Bloops, we could our competing podcast. Yeah, they're taking all the podcast money, aren't they? They are. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Whatever. <laughs> uh, he asked about loudness standards in specifically iOS. Ah, do you have anything to say? I have. Some thoughts. I, Do I don't use a, a lot of standards, really. With games, I tend to embrace the freedom to find something that I like the levels up mm-hmm. on, like where I'm not turning it up, I'm not turning it down, and then I just set my mixing levels to that and mm. mix, mix to that with my ears. All right. See, I took it a different way. Mm-hmm. Like, there's totally that. There's what volume level should you mix at. Like, yeah. film has, like... These are the volumes you mix TV at. TV is well, very strict, yeah. These are the volumes you mix film at, like what the SPL coming out of your speakers, like mm-hmm. that's what they mix at, 
right? Yeah. That's, I forgot about that. I was thinking about your digital loudness, like the Sony loudness guidelines. LUFS? Yeah. Yeah. Like I have been following more of that and doing like Don't Starve followed the LUFS standards that Sony had laid out. And I think all games should be following those standards. It's just better if all of us are in the same volume point and nobody's trying to do a, like a volume war the way that happened to music of every, you know, my game's the loudest game. It's like, yeah, I agree. That's bullshit. Yeah. Um, I do think that um, minus 23 is the like Sony standard that other Microsoft and EA, Ubisoft, they've all like subscribed to that now too. Right. Um, but, but I think portable ones should be louder than that. Yes. Um, I think Sony put out for the Vita 18 or that's maybe it's I, 21. That's what I usually do for like online or streaming things. Things that I know are going to wind yeah. up on mobile. Yeah. I usually do eight, minus 18, 18, minus 16. Yeah. And I think that's good. I think there is a lot of reasons why mobile needs to be overall louder. It's got to cram and more I think sound the great, of those little speakers. The great thing about those standards um, is that it's an overtime measurement. And like Sony advises at least an hour, three or four hours or your entire gameplay length measured wow. as a chunk yeah. if you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Don't Starve, I measured like I think two hours worth and tried to capture the loudest moments and the quietest moments. Right. Um, and that's good because it means you could have the dynamic range to your game. It's not like you have to be everything is the same volume. Like allows you to have a, a game that is just loud all the time and a game that has a big dynamic range. So in that case, you get louder moments, but you also have quieter moments. Right. Um, so yeah, I think loudness standards are really important. And I come from music when it comes to mixing. So I know the film guys are like, you set it at this SPL and you leave it there. You don't touch the volume up. I'm like, volume's up, down, different systems. Yeah, because like, you're really paying I'm, a lot more attention to the Fletcher Munson curve, I think. Yeah, that's like I'm taking. So, you know, I, I think when you're mixing, turn it up and down. Yeah. You know, try to try to pick a level to do most of that, but check it when it's really quiet and see what that's like. Yeah, maybe because, you've lost everything. Well, and there might be flaws in there as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of related to loudness stuff. Always test on the system you're coming out on. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're PC, get some crummy PC speakers and a set of headphones. If you're on a console, get a TV, get a consumer surround sound setup, get a really nice surround sound setup, test it on all those things. If you're on a phone, check it on that phone. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff that allow you to stream stuff right to a phone, even if your game isn't running on it yet. And you can check out what those horrible yeah. little speakers Airfoil? are. Airfoil? Yeah, that's one of them. Airfoil. There's a big lag, but it works. It does work. Yeah. I've, I've used it. I think the lag doesn't matter when you're just like... Here's, no, when you're just testing loudness yeah. and compression, yeah. it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. So uh, there's some thoughts on, on loudness. Last question. And this was a big one. This was uh, Jake Hawkins. He actually he asked it, and then I was like, oh, oh my God, that's huge. And he's like, Haha, you asked. <laughs> so favorite for implementing engine exhaust vehicle audio sounds. Oh, that's all you, man. So, you have? Do you have any opinions? I have never uh, implemented a vehicle. I just know that I really like Wise and would probably use Wise. But, uh, uh, um, when it comes to middleware, where I'd use Rev. Rev from, from Crankcase Audio. Wow. Okay. Um, never even heard of it. Yeah, they. But it's, it sounds it's, like it's it's pretty good for motors. Yeah, <laughs> Rev is is integrated into Wise now. Oh, cool. So you can get it as a plug-in, I believe, right. and I think it works in Unity as well. Um, and it's uh, X um, black box 
guys who did the sounds for Need for Speed Underground and oh, Underground great. 2. Okay. So it doesn't work off of loops. It works off of a, an acceleration and deacceleration recording. Okay. Which to me is is the best sounding thing there is for, for that kind of stuff. Yeah. So um, do you need pre-existing vehicle sounds? Uh, yes. You you're, need to ju- you need your I mean, own recording. Just if you were going to do a loop engine, you need to record loops of a car yep. in, on a dyno or on a track or whatever, like steady state loops. You need to record acceleration passes. Rev has pre-recorded stuff to license to you if you're doing a like a, not a huge – like if you're not doing a crazy racing game, they probably have enough samples that you can – license from them along with the engine yeah. to, to fulfill your needs. Yeah. Um, and then you can tweak them and stuff too. But it's just like anything. If you're going to do a serious car game, you need to record the right cars for your audio engine, whatever it yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. If it's rev and acceleration-based thing or if it's a loop-based thing, you're going to need to go record it because the vast majority of car recordings out there are not for games. Yeah. Like you get into a territory where you need to do custom recordings yeah. or find people to do those recordings for you. Yeah. Um, so that's – it's one of the coolest uh, implementation engines I've seen for audio stuff. That's cool. And if anybody wants a challenge, a looping challenge, is to grab a car horn and try to loop it seamlessly. <laughs> that is really tricky. Try looping engines. The worst. Yeah. Engines, engines are a nightmare. Yeah, looping engines and then compress them into a game engine. It's yeah. just it's not it's nuts. I did far too much of that. <laughs> um right. so yeah, there was some questions. There was a sweet interview. And that's pretty much a podcast for this time around. Thanks for listening. Thank you.